You are listening to the San Antonio Zen Center Dharma Talks. The San Antonio Zen Center is supported solely by donation, so that everyone can participate in our offerings and programs, regardless of income. If you are able, please consider making a donation to SAZC through the donation button on our site, sanantoniozen.org, or by visiting paypal.me slash sanantoniozen. Thank you for your practice and enjoy the talk. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, I think first off, I'd like to say happy anniversary. Uh, last Sunday was two years since we moved into this place. Last year we had a potluck. Or tried to, I think. I think Harvey kind of interrupted that, and we had it a week after that. Um, but from now on, we'll just say happy anniversary. Maybe we could call it Interdependence Day. Um, also, I'd like to uh, thank Enrique and Miyoshi and Etsudo for opening up while I was away this week. Thank you for keeping the Zen Center open. We have the, in, in our tradition, we have the, actually in the Buddhist tradition, the, we have the factors that help us practice. They're called the, the paramitas, just wisdom, energy, concentration, meditation, uh, among, that's not the full list, but uh, I would also offer that there is another uh, factor in in practice that we can cultivate and rely on in our practice, and that is uh, courage. So it's, courage is one of those words that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. Right? Synonyms are bravery or fearlessness, boldness and valor. Uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, it was called intestinal fortitude. They talked about intestinal fortitude a lot. So uh, what I won't be doing is giving an all-encompassing definition I'll give you my idea of it later on, but it's a very personal thing, uh, this courage in practice. And the reason that it is so important in our practice is we need it especially in the beginning when we are practicing. When I first came to practice, all I knew was that the way I was living my life was no longer working and I needed to do something else. I've been interested in Buddhism for years, done a ton of reading, uh, but had actually never practiced. So uh, when I actually came to Zen practice almost 20 years ago, uh, it was a, I was kind of surprised by uh, how difficult it was. <laughs> Physically, because I had not been doing this crazy cross-legged thing before, um, but 
also, uh, even though I knew I was suffering, I had been distracting myself in a variety of ways. And so when, uh, when I found that the volume had been at 11 in terms of my suffering all along, uh, it wasn't until I sat and really experienced the intensity of the volume that I was completely unprepared for it. Because we have a lot of ideas in meditation that, well, we're going to sit, we're going to bliss out, everything's going to be okay. And often what happens is whenever we come and sit and the, uh, we experience the suffering without the distractions, it's very easy to, to get unnerved by it. And more importantly, to think that we're doing something wrong. So if you're sitting and you're suffering, you're not doing anything wrong. We're actually getting in touch with it. And um, it takes a lot to sit still in the face of it. To sit still and to um, really feel it. To, to let it in, all, all the while knowing that it's been in all along. But to really be present with it and to face it. And this, this, takes, this takes a lot of courage. And how I want to look at courage is through uh, three different lenses, and that is renunciation, heroic perseverance, and equanimity. So uh, many of you have heard me talk about renunciation before, so you're going to hear some things again, um, and some of you haven't. So whenever we talk about renunciation, normally in the Buddhist tradition we're talking about um, like monastic ordination or priest ordination in the Zen tradition. And the normal signifier that you have for that is the shaved head and the extra cloth that, that uh, we wear. But the shaved head is um, in, in Asia, in the San Francisco Zen Center. You know who the priests are because they're the ones the monks, they're the ones that, that are shaving their heads. The beauty of Suzuki Roshi coming to the States uh, and, and practicing this, uh, he really encouraged lay practice. Uh, more importantly, he encouraged practice. It's really what he didn't, he actually really didn't care if you were a priest or a layman, he just wanted you to come sit. And in the Meiji period, in the late 1800s in Japan, they made it perfect for Zen to come to the States because they said that priests could marry. Up until that point, priests couldn't marry. It was an attempt to undermine Zen. Um, um, Zen was out. Zen was out, and uh, I'm blanking on the native religion. Shinto. Shinto was in. Zen was out. Um, and so what they did was they made it perfect for it to show up. The Japanese made it perfect for introduction to the states. Which is why Suzuki Roshi said when he was talking to all of his students, he said, you're not exactly monks, and you're not exactly lame. Because we all do monastic practice. Whenever we sit, 
Sazen, just as you are sitting right now, whenever we sit and face the wall, in all my years of practice, I've never been able to make a distinction between the practice, between lay practice and priest practice. We're all doing, because it's just practice. It's not a monastic practice. It's not a lay practice. It's just practice. So, uh, the, uh, so renunciation is actually really important. And unfortunately, it has these kind of, this connotation of pushing away. Renunciation has that can have that feeling of pushing away. And the word that I often think of, let's say this, uh, or would offer as an alternative is relinquishment. Relinquishing, letting go of something. So one Tibetan teacher says that renunciation is letting go whatever causes us, causes us suffering. My personal definition is letting go of whatever keeps us away from the present moment. Letting go of whatever distracts us or getting caught up in our suffering, not coming back to the breath or the body, we let that go and we come back. And that's a, that can be a tall order. If we are attached to something, whether it's positive, negative, or neutral, it's very hard to relinquish that, to let it go. And often, the, the practice of relinquishing positive something positive that, that we like that invokes a greed response is something that's very conscious. Uh, there was a rich man who came to the Buddha and said, you know, I want to give, but I can't let go of uh, money. So the Buddha had, him, had this man uh, take some money and just transfer it from one hand to another. That was his way of cultivating generosity with beginning the process of being able to give what he had to let go of it for the other hand to receive it. And this is this is how he until he could actually begin to give it away. What's often more difficult is relinquishing things that cause us suffering. And the reason that that's so difficult is it's it's karmic in nature and a lot of it is unconscious or subconscious in nature. So we continue these habit patterns. We don't know why we continue these habit patterns, but we are continuing these habit patterns that cause us suffering. And it is when we come and sit that we really begin to get in contact with the things that cause us suffering and our relationship to them so that we can begin to relinquish them. And then we can begin the practice of cultivation of letting that trying to respond in a different way if someone is offering the bait to hook us. Trying out different ways of response rather than just reacting. And to do this takes a quite a large leap of faith, particularly if we've never done it before. And sometimes we have to practice it over and over again. One of the brilliant sayings of the recovery movement is fake it till you make it. And this is a, this practice is, is a great way to do that. These, these practices are. So in the Bodhicharya Vitara, the way of the Bodhisattva, 
Shantideva has an entire, quite large chapter dedicated to heroic perseverance. This is really such a great title. Just, just to keep going, to keep going. In, in, uh, even in the face of what feels like daunting odds. Or for us as practitioners, uh, more importantly, it can be conti- continuing even when it feels like nothing is happening. Like we're not noticing any changes in ourselves. The changes that occur in us in practice are so subtle. Joko Beck says, you know, they happen on a cellular level. So they're that subtle. So we're slowly turning the ship, slowly beginning the process to turn the ship. And sometimes it can be very easy to get discouraged if we're not noticing changes. Usually it's the people in our lives that notice the changes, and they'll make make a comment on it. Another way to look at it is uh, uh, our Bodhisattva vow, which we're going to be chanting in a little bit. We say, delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Uh, Robert Kennedy Roshi and the Peacemaker lineage, they say, delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to endure them. Which is, wow, that really strikes, that really strikes the mark. Bound to endure our delusions, so to be present with them, to see them through. And in doing so, we end them. These delusions are ended. And uh, those of you that know me know that uh, I took a little Latin in college, so I'm a little bit of a word geek about some things. But for the word, Courage, the, the French is cour, so direct from that. The Latin is core, so it's heart. And it's not this, it's actually heart. And uh, my understanding is that the original intention of the word courage is to speak one's mind by telling one's heart. So to speak our mind, to say what is on our mind, by seeing what is alive for us, what's actually going on. And whenever we do this, whenever we tell our heart, whenever we say what is in our heart, which doesn't mean that we're not afraid, it just means that we take the risk of being vulnerable. So we make ourselves vulnerable in that moment. The root of that word is vulnerable, is uh, woundable, to be woundable. So we're just laying ourselves open. Uh, it doesn't, and again, it doesn't mean that we can't be afraid and do this. We can be terrified of the consequences of saying what's in our heart. Um, but to do it, is uh, truly an act of, literally an act of courage, right? Because pulling, pulling the heart right back into it. So my, my personal definition of courage is very close to this that I've operated with for a number of years. 
and that is uh, to be afraid, but to do it anyway. It's not a Arnold Schwarzenegger or Bruce Willis type character of this nerveless being that makes quippy sayings after the awesome one. Uh, but it's actually to, to be afraid and to do what needs to be done. Having a difficult conversation with the partner, it may be. Uh, it's, it's usually uh, around uh, words and actions. So, uh, a good example of this, I've not been able to find the story so I can read it from you to, to you directly. But during the Second World War in France, there was uh, a lot of people didn't resist, but some folks did uh, resist the, the occupation of the Germans and the cooperation of a lot of the French. Uh, at great risk to their lives, but What's interesting when you read about it is the ways that resistance showed itself. For some people, it was uh, putting up posters in Paris denouncing the, the, the Nazi occupation. Uh, or it might be sabotaging rail cars. It might be smuggling Jews into Switzerland. It might be outright denunciation. A lot of a lot of priests were killed because they denounced the, the occupation. But the vast majority of the of uh, the resistance was a passive resistance, which was just the refusal to turn over Jews or to or to denounce them to the authorities. And so what what hap what what happened was. In this, in this one small town, everybody was walking around together, Jews and Gentiles. Nobody would, nobody would, would turn over the Jews. And uh, there was this one guy who was walking along it. Every day he'd see this family. I always find this story quite touching. So um, you would see this one family uh, of, of Jews and would just not to and go on. And then after the war was over, the, the, this guy went to this young woman. And, and I think it was some years afterwards. Uh, this uh, young, uh, well, she was a young woman then, but she was a girl at the time that this happened. And he came to her and he said, you know, I wanted to do more. But I was so scared. I was so scared. And she said, she goes, that's okay. She goes, you looked at me. So you acknowledged me. So she was just seeing them. For, for her, for her family, made a huge difference. And a, a lot of people in this town didn't, uh, actually, nobody turned over the, the Jews in this town. 
and after the and after the war, there was a people wanting to make a hullabaloo about it, and they said, "Well, we're just doing what people do. You know, we're just taking care of people." And even to this day, they don't like uh, any brouhaha, any accolades. It's a small, it's a, it's, it's a small farming town. So there's very subtle plaques you know, in this town saying what happened. So this is like, uh, like a real concrete example of, you know, he thought he had failed in his courage, but that's not how this young woman saw it. She saw it as being very courageous. So we're often not the best judge of, of what we think is courageous or if we think we are being courageous. Finally, with uh, equanimity, it's very easy to think of equanimity as being like, oh, you know, it's all good. That's, that's kind of how we think of it. It's, it's all good. Uh, I would offer maybe it's the ability to accept all things equally. doesn't mean that we don't have preferences. It doesn't mean that we don't accept. And that, mean, that doesn't mean that we accept injustice. But we have to see it and to acknowledge, acknowledge it before we can take action. So we can't say, oh, there's, there's no such thing as racism anymore. You know, that was, it was very common, apparently. Uh, I, was, I was at Tassajara when Barack Obama was elected, so I missed a lot of the language that was going on at the time. But there was seemed to be the sentiment that we're, that we were past it since we had a, past racism since we had elected the black president. And we find that that's not true. Unfortunately, it's a lie. I wouldn't say well, but very intact. Uh, so. To say yes, there's racism is to accept that the fact that it is there so that we can do something about it rather than turning the blind eye to it. Just as an, as an example. The great story of this in Zen is the, the, the priest, uh, the Zen priest who lived in this village. And this young woman got pregnant out of wedlock. And parents were not happy campers about this. And so she asked, they asked her, uh, who's the father? And she didn't want to say who it was, so she said, it's the village priest. So the family took the baby to the village priest and said, you did this, you deal with it. And pushed the baby off on him. And the priest said, oh, is that so? 
wasn't defending himself. He saw what needed to be done, which was the care of the child, and took care of the child. Sometime later, this young woman owned up. She said, no, no, it's this young boy here in, here in town. And parents, so they go back to the priest and said, oh, I'm so sorry, you're such a good priest. Can we get the baby back now? And the priest said, is that so? And he gave the child back to the mother. So the mother and the young boys would be married and raise the child. Doesn't mean that, I'm sure he probably felt twinge giving up the child after taking care of it. In, in my memory of the story is it had been a while in between parents foisted the, the baby out when they came back to kill So uh, his view of himself did not matter in that moment. His view of the parents did not matter in the moment. What, what mattered for him was the care of the child. That was the most important thing. Uh, if he had not had the equanimity to accept the child, then uh, who knows what would have happened. More importantly for us in practice, the role of equanimity is to be able to accept the good stuff in our life as well. There's a theory that we are, we've evolved. Uh, the reason we evolved is because we found the negative much more useful than the positive knowing what to avoid. Stay away from the things with the long, sharp teeth. Uh, stay away from this poisonous plant. Uh, so uh, it's very easy for us to go to the negative. But we have to remember to appreciate our life, as Maizumi Roshi said, to be able to see and appreciate Things that are the things that nourish us for the, maybe maybe for this little while, for a short period of time, things aren't so bad. You know, if we're struggling, then there's the cessation of struggling. That's actually really important because one of the things that we talk about in Zen, there's this practice called Doksan, where you meet one on one with the teacher. When we first start practice, when we first start meeting with the teachers, it's, you know, woe is me, a lot of suffering. Just working through our suffering. Listening to a sympathetic ear. Having someone with a sympathetic ear listening to us. And after a while, <clears throat> the challenge is, well, what do you talk about when you're not suffering anymore? And it's time for doksan. Because like, at, at, at uh, Tassahara, San Francisco Zen Center, you're on a regular doksan schedule. So what happens is, it's, when it's your turn, you're like, oh, <laughs> what am I going to say? <laughs> I don't have anything to complain about or to, to, to struggle with. And uh, so to tell our heart when we go in is to say, you know, I don't have much to say right now. Things are quiet, you know, for the first time in a long time. 
sometimes they'll say, oh, good. Yeah. And they ring you out, or my teacher would always say, well, let's, let's sit sasana for a while, so you just sit quietly together. But it's actually really important to acknowledge this. It's so easy to, the, um, the uh, negative or the painful, it's kind of Velcro, it's really sticky. It's really easy to get stuck. But the uh, positive can be a little bit like, you know, like a, a wet tile floor or something along those lines. So it's really important to say, oh, okay, so I'm not suffering so much today. I'm not suffering right now. Let me come back later, but it's, things are okay. And that can bring it on its own challenges. Well, who am I without my suffering? So, in the in the course of doing all of this, this wonderful practice, giving everything in our lives, equal attention, equal love, equal devotion. Uh, no matter what arises, whether it's, even if it's positive, uh, we are transformed by this. Our attention transforms us, our devotion to it, our mindfulness. We do not transform, but we are transformed. which is a very big and distinct difference between the two. Just as the water wears away rock, we think we often think of water as wearing away rock. It's an image that we often use. This not really so much the water that wears away the rock, but all, all the particulate that the water carries wears away the rock. It's these small little bits of sand, and detritus that smooth away the stone. It's not really so much the water itself, but the water is the agent. It's the carrier. Just as Zazen is the agent for us. It is the vehicle. So I have heart. Lots of courage. get discouraged, just remember, just remember that the primary tenet of Buddhism, everything changes. So if we can carry that, you know, particularly if we are suffering most intensely, just remember that everything changes. It's not always going to be like this. Um, that in itself is the equanimity and the courage. Just to remember that and to, to hold that. Even if we don't believe it, we just don't believe it. Any thoughts or questions?